It's Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. When Diane Condrat was refining her skills as an actress, she went through a two-year course on the Meisner technique. Part of the goal of that technique is to give you the ability to respond naturally to another person's behavior. It's not till the second year that you try to do it in character. The whole first year is just about doing it yourself. For a while, I thought that learning that technique would allow me to practice that in real life. But let me tell you, in real life, truth isn't always what people are looking for. Another reason to prize the stage above real life. On today's episode, we hear from Diane Kondrat on theater and life right after this. This is Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. I grew up in Western Massachusetts. As a teenager, I had a feel for the South, the West, the general Midwest even. But Southern Indiana didn't exist as a place. If you're listening here in Southern Indiana, you might think that changed with college, that I was applying to schools and IU came up as a world-class university. It did come up, actually, because I was looking at music schools. The conservatory here was apparently renowned. I didn't quite believe it, though. I didn't apply. I've been here for 20 years now. I feel like a naturalized Hoosier. And it turned out there were more things in southern Indiana that I'd dreamt of. Still, sometimes I wonder what things would have been like if I'd landed in a big city. So when a friend was coming to town to see the locally famous actress, Diane Kondrat, in a one-woman show, I jumped on the chance to join and to talk to Diane. Because, like me, she had big dreams as a teenager. She wanted to act. And she probably wasn't dreaming that she'd make her career doing regional theater in a set of relatively small Midwestern cities. I don't think that's what most actors aspire to when they (laughs) get started. Uh, a comedy show. I didn't know we were doing a comedy show today. It's, that's better. I feel better already. Diane's been acting for 45 years, a lot of those years here in Bloomington, Indiana. She formed her own theater company, two of them actually. She was also a regular at the Phoenix Theater in Indianapolis and at Cardinal Stage, the professional theater in Bloomington, once that got started. She's since moved to Portland, Oregon to be closer to her grown kids. But she came back to star in Cardinal's production of Every Brilliant Thing. It's a one-woman show about a girl trying to ease her mother's depression with a list of all the best things in the world. We met up at Butler Park in Bloomington on a beautiful day in early September. We talked about getting into acting, making a life in regional theater, and how to just be with another person. But of course I wanted to hear about her origins first. So were your parents artistic? Nope. My dad played the accordion. Does that count? Does that count? I come from poor people. And amongst poor people, the arts, especially a career in the arts, is nothing but crazy talk. That's just wrong-minded. And um, my father's uh, Ukrainian, my mother's Lithuanian. And I know that my dad at one point, I was talking about how I didn't sing well enough. And he said, oh, you're Ukrainian. It doesn't matter how well you sing, you just sing. (laughs) But even saying that, there wasn't There wasn't that much music or art around the house. My parents were big theater goers, though. I was born in Newark, New Jersey, and they, if my mother had kept the programs from the year that she saw the premieres of South Pacific, The Music Man, uh, West Side Story, I mean, they went to the theater all the time, but they didn't want me to be in the theater. Were they sort of struggling financially or were they sort of in that that sort of immigrant kind of thing of like they actually they get here and they manage to sort of they came from both of them came from quite poor families, but they ended up being in certainly upper middle class, I'd say, by the time I was, you know, like in grammar school and stuff. Um, My dad was a. He was in retail and finance and retail, one of the reasons we moved as much as we did. But yeah, there was a a little bit of time before my father lost his job. Uh, The company Jacobson's in in Ohio, a department store, uh, when I was like a junior in high school, I wanted a dress. And I thought, oh, that dress is expensive. And then I thought, well, I'll just say. And so I said, and they said I could have it like right away. And I thought, hold on. 
I think we're rich. And then my father lost his job. <laughs> and that was the end of that was the end of that. He became an insurance man. And my parents lost quite a few friends because I was shocked. Quite a few friends because they were not in the appropriate um, social strata anymore. Ain't that ain't that garbage? How old were you when that happened? Uh, I was in high school. In I was halfway school. through high school. Did you feel like it affected you? Um, I didn't feel it that much, but my mom did because she had. I remember the brochures she had of New England. Uh, fancy New England colleges where she was hoping to sell me into a very lucrative marriage uh, and set me up for the rest of time. And I I mean, they were all over the place. I mean, I did well in school. Uh, those brochures were all over the place and they were very nice. And when she realized she had to send me to a state college, she was heartbroken. So what about you? Were you already planning on studying theater? I was very cowed by my parents and especially my mother was there are people who listen who are listening to this who I'm sure know my mom because she lived here for a while. She's a very powerful personality. And so I did what I was told. And I know people who you like broke up with their parents when they graduated from high school and went and did whatever they wanted. I did what I was told, which was go to school. So as it turned out, for the first two years of college, I switched my major. I wasn't allowed to be a theater major. I switched my major at least three times, ended up taking all of the requirements for a Bachelor of Arts. And then when I, oops, sorry, got married when I was 20 to a writer, much to my mother's continuing chagrin. Um, yeah, this is one of the happiest memories of my life. I was walking to class the first day of my junior year of college and all the books in my arms were theater books because I was finally going to be a theater major. And I was on uh, at least half scholarship. I auditioned and they were like, oh, we'll give some money. So, yeah, I was so happy to be able to finally be a theater major. What, how did you manage to do that in relation to your mother? Like, did you was it get it having gotten married? Yes. yes. These were the olden days, you understand. So when, once that happened, they were so mad. I mean, who they were mad. I started dating the person I married in May, and we got married on August 2nd. And part of that was that I was going to get to be a theater major. Because all bets were off. They weren't going to pay. They were mad. They weren't going to pay for college anymore. And so he would get his money from one window and he'd walk three windows down and he'd give it all back uh, to pay for my undergrad because <laughs> he was he was teaching there at the time. He had just graduated with an MFA in fiction writing from this was at Bowling Green State University. OK, so you studied theater. Ultimately, you managed to study theater in college. And then what next? How did you sort of move from college to actually working in theater? Oh, I have I have nothing but. I have really sad stories for you today. I have another sad. I have a, that was kind of a happy story. Um, this is a very sad story. It took me years to recover from this story. When I graduated from college, I went to something called URTA, University Resident Theater Auditions. I believe they still have them. They're national auditions for jobs and for MFA programs and stuff like that. I got 14 job offers, some from London, some from Paris. I won't even name, I'm going to start to cry. I won't even name the, the programs, the masters, the MFA programs that I received offers of full scholarships from. But my confidence was so low that I absolutely remember thinking, what is wrong with these colleges that they send people to interview you who are mentally ill? because people were telling me they were going to build their entire master's degree program around me. This happened a lot at those things. And I didn't believe, I thought they were crazy. And um, then everybody talked about it because this was after, after I'd been married two years. So my parents were back in the conversation. Everybody talked about it. And Tony had a job offer in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. And he said the magic words that, don't worry, more opportunities will come your way. For anyone who's listening, take 
the opportunities the first time they come your way. Do not, I repeat, do not wait for them to come again. Um, so I never took any of those 14 offers. And I moved to the East Coast to a, a very large uh, population base is uh, the Tidewater area in Virginia. And I auditioned everywhere I could um, when I got there and did as much theater as I could. I My father was dying uh, a few years after that while well, I was still in Virginia. And he wanted me to get an advanced degree so that I would be safe for the rest of my life. That's how we get safe. And uh, there was no MFA close. I had already had my son, uh, Nick Artizoni, Nicholas Conrad Artizoni. Um, and, but there was a, an MA. So I have a sterling Masters of Arts in the Humanities from Old Dominion University. I'm not sure it's going to save my life. Oh, but I did get all A's. Um, I did get all A's. And my father was happy. I mean, when your father is dying and says, please, I'll pay for it. Go get your master's degree. You say, you betcha. I surely will. Um, so the funny thing I did there was um, Christian Broadcasting Network is there. And let me tell you, they've got a lot of the Lord's money, or at least they did then. And so everybody worked for for Christian Broadcasting Network every time they called. So um, there was that. And I helped run a theater that was associated with Old Dominion University that was kind of a combo pack. Yeah, I, I helped to run it. I also cleaned the toilets when it went from being a porn house to a theater. Yeah, I remember that. Um, so I, I did all the theater I could. Um, and a lot of radio was being done then. I did a lot of radio in uh, Richmond, Virginia. It was wonderful work. So I patched together a life because the truth for me in all these uh, years is that I knew that without theater, I couldn't, I couldn't keep breathing right. The theater is the safe place for me. And without that, oh my, I knew I would just fall apart. So there wasn't a choice. Oh, maybe I'll get involved with theater. It was like, ah, I have to find, <laughs> I have to find a place. And I did. And I did. So the Riverview Playhouse was my home. Uh, it was close to where I lived. And I worked there for the whole time I was in. We were in Norfolk, Virginia for nine years, which prior to that, I had never lived in one place for that duration of time. So that was the first time I lived someplace for a long time. All right. So you were in Norfolk. And did you come to Bloomington from there? Yes. And so you're moving from Norfolk to Bloomington with two young kids. Yes. And... My daughter was three months old and my son was five when I first came to Bloomington. And you were already acting and you're coming here wanting to keep acting. How did it feel to move here? It was stunning. Um, I had a dream. There's a cemetery at High Street in Covenanter that people who live here will know of because it's a beautiful little cemetery. And there used to be, there's still one great big tree that kind of hangs over the road, but there used to be another one and it's gone down now. And I had a, before I had ever seen the cemetery, I had a dream that was a photograph of that cemetery. And the voice in the dream said, I hope you're ready because this is what it's going to be like. Because even though I was in Virginia, which is not, you know, when people say, oh, I want to be an actor, they, they do not say, get thee to Tidewater, Virginia. Uh, there was a lot going on. There was a lot going on there. And um, I came here and there was not, uh, certainly no cardinal stage. And I did what I do, which is go to every single organization that I can find that is doing theater and bring my resume and bring my headshot and say hello. And I'm polite for a little while. It's really trying, but I do it. And uh, I might even wear some clothes that look like you could wear them, you know, for a commercial or something. And uh, so I did that and I did not find what I needed um, in town. And so I started uh, producing 
myself as uh, Oasis Productions. I had 2,000, my father died, and I had $2,000 uh, given to me by my mom when my father died. And I used that $2,000 for the next 18 years. I spent it and I made it back. And that was the money for a theater company. Wow. Um, I worked for free. I'll, mostly we had to pay um, rent. We had to pay royalties. Of course, we had to have some kind of sets. We had some kind of lights. The only people who reliably got paid were technicians because I... I didn't know enough people who were like, sure, I'll run your lights. Oh, who could actually run lights, right? Um, so uh, Oasis Productions was small cast shows with great roles for women. Gee, I wonder who any of those women might be. So as a producer, it was a pleasure to be able to do pieces that were engaging on an intellectual level. I remember doing a Naomi Wallace play called One Flea Spare that actually I was looking into right before COVID happened. It's about the last time the Black Plague came to Britain and these people that are stuck in their houses with a guard because there's been plague in their house. Uh, and somebody came up to me at the end of the, a woman came up to me at the end of the show and she said, why do you do plays like this? This woman is suffering, and you're giving an example that's very, very dark. I have another play that was amongst my favorites. Perhaps people remember Mom and the Razor Blades by Wendy Hammond, who used to teach at Ann Arbor. Um, it's, a, it's a part of a trio of plays called Family Lives, Three Brutal Comedies, and it happens on mom's birthday, and uh, it's a terrifying play. She beats one of her children to death behind a couch with a baseball bat, um, and it's like a cartoon with stuff flying out. So if I have something that I favor the most, it's um, dark comedy is my favorite, but... I like darkness all around, all around the neighborhood. Not as much as some people, and I'm happy to say I don't remember this playwright's name. He's a man, and he's, uh, he's made a lot of money, and people really like him. And I can't remember his name, and I'm glad about it. Uh, his plays are so dark. Maybe banging my head into something about hitting my head with nails or banging my... Oh, he's famous. I hate his work. There's a... There's a pessimism that comes from some people when they do dark stuff that it's like well you should you should kill yourself instead you know I don't have to read this you should eat it choke on it and die because obviously that's what you want to do right so there has to be I think in the stuff that I like either stuff that's so funny and like when we did our fringe show, me and Karen Irwin, a fringe show written by Eric Pfeffinger, Assholes and Orioles, that we took to different places. Um, it's so dark that you're laughing and laughing because it's like, oh, no, this is awful and so true that then you are you feel better because you've laughed about it. So that's one thing that can happen in, in comedy. But the other thing that when something is really dark and it's in dramatic work, there is an indomitable spirit, I think, that for me really always exists in women because the oppression of women is so popular. <laughs> it's a worldwide popular event for hundreds and thousands of years across all kinds of cultures. It's like, wow, okay, how does that work? So by the nature of doing plays that focused on at least having 50% of the roles be really good women's roles meant that you were highlighting an oppressive situation that still she lived she lived through it, and her eyes are still open. And, of course, her heart is even more open because it's been shattered so many times and then had to rebuild itself uh, into a, a more vibrantly functional organ. 
that was a, and all these are very long answers. <laughs> <laughs> this is Interstates. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with actress Diane Condrat. We'll be back with more after a short break. This is Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. I'm talking with Diane Condrat. By the time she moved to Portland, Oregon in 2014, Diane was an almost 30-year veteran of Southern Indiana theater. But we're still in the early days here, when she was cycling $2,000 through her company, Oasis Productions. In and out. In and out. She needed more work. Because she's the kind of person who puts herself out there, someone came to her aid. And it wasn't just her future collaborator, No Weatherwax. Um, it was God. Um, one day, I got a phone call from Dee Dee Foster at the county jail. And she said, I'm writing. I had already been a producer. She said, I'm writing a grant for using interactive theater in, uh, in the jail for HIV AIDS education. Uh, and I need somebody who knows how to do theater. Can I put your name on it? And I said, you bet you can. And if you know anybody else that's writing a grant and they need somebody who knows how to do theater to put their name on it, you don't have to judge this. My name, just spell it out and put it on the grant. Uh, and so she got the money and I contacted Nell. Uh, she contacted me. I contacted Nell and it was like, what are we going to do? And uh, then we started um, also Chris Jaffe, uh, who I believe still lives in town, um, was one of our original members. And uh, we had, it needs the, the form that we used. It's interactive theater is, has many, many forms. Sometimes it's called applied theater. Um, but the way we did it, you had to have three actors and a moderator to do a one-hour show. And so we needed four people, and uh, we uh, got four people, and we became competent in the form, and it was really exciting work. My brother um, had spent time in federal prison. It was very hard for me to go inside jails and to hear the as anybody knows who has worked in prisons, the hear the door close behind you, see people literally in chains, um, that was really hard. That was pretty fresh when my, bro my brother killed himself uh, rather than go back to jail. Uh, so that was pretty fresh at the time. But it also, like a lot of people, made me eager to serve that population who finds themselves in uh the American prison system, which is certainly a whole nother show. Um, so we started to do that. And um, I will be frank, at the time, HIV uh, rates were rising among the white male heterosexual population. And you can't let those people get sick. So all of a sudden, there was uh, a good deal of money. Later on, when uh, HIV was rising more among women of color, uh, that money went away. Um, but you know, it took a while. So, uh, yeah, we did a lot of work all over the state in juvenile facilities and adult facilities, um, doing, um, HIV AIDS education for a, a long time. And that's where I learned how to do improv before I did what if, and there was two names when we finally got 501c3 status, it was interaction theater incorporated. But before that it was what if programs, because we were always sitting around going, what if, what if, and then what if, because you had to write a scene, a very short, tight, urgent scene that was written for an actor as a as a kind of map without specific lines. So you learned the story, you didn't learn specific lines, but it had to be crafted so it could come to a reasonable, believable point within five minutes. So it always had to have some really high stakes going on. And we were always like, so what if, what if, what if, what if he comes in now and he remember, you know, that kind of stuff. So we finally called it what if programs. What, why did it have to be, uh Improvised? Like, why not the lines? Um, because that was the form of interactive theater that we chose. Okay. And it also prepares the performer because the way we did it was in an hour, we would do three different scenes. The scenes were not connected to each other like chapters in a book. They were independent. People kept their own names. So if I was an actor and I was Diane in the first scene, I would also be Diane in the second scene, but it would be a completely different situation. After the scene happens... 
the moderator stops the action and then facilitates interaction between the audience and the actors while they remain in character. So it's not like we told this story, now we're going to talk about it. No, 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 no. The the scene just ended and he's got his hand raised and he's going to punch me in the face. And then the moderator stops the action and says, well, what do you, what do you think she should do? So then the story moves in a way with all of a sudden it's like instead of three people in the scene, there's 33 people in the scene because everybody in the room is in the scene now. So it prepares the actor for that moment, but it also means that you need less rehearsal because you can bring somebody in if they're good. You can bring somebody in, show them a story and say, okay, do the story. And then you don't have to be like, oh, on that line, you know, you have to say, please put your foot over there before I, no, no, no. You can say whatever, as long as you get that thing, the intention going. But before I did those programs on stage, if I, if I missed a line or somebody else missed a line, Really, the only thing I could do was repeat the last thing I said <laughs> and look, look, hopefully at another person. Maybe I could say their line, but I could never come up with anything right that would save me in a moment. But after doing a few years of the interactive theater, uh, that took care of that problem. <laughs> so was that where was that in relation to your Meisner training? Because I was I did was just reading up a little bit about Meisner. And that's part of the training in Meisner, too. Right. Is. Repeating being in the moment, being, being in the, the moment. moment. Uh, the repetition exercise, which is a, a basic part of the Meisner technique, really the use of the word repeat or repetition doesn't, it probably should be called a different thing because that's really not the essence of that. The, the, the purpose of the repetition re exercise is to teach you to work moment to moment off another person's behavior, responding moment to moment as things happen. So it's don't think, just be there and be fully with the other person. So of course, that's all the yes and stuff that you hear in regular improv stuff. So I started to learn Meisner when I was um, in my early 30s. And it was around the same time. Yeah, we were doing, uh, actually, we started the prison work before that. So yeah, it was around the same time. So yeah, those both sort of helped you. Oh, improv. you know what? You know what? We should probably go back okay. and re re. I should probably let me let me let me. The purpose of the repetition exercise is teach you work moment to moment off another person's behavior, dealing with that behavior moment to moment as it happens. I'm going to try to say that. The purpose of the repetition exercise is to teach you to work off another person's behavior, picking up each. God. I feel really bad because this is my teacher. She'll hear this. The purpose of the repetition the purpose of the repetition exercise is to teach you to work moment to moment off another person's behavior, dealing with that behavior moment to moment as it happens. I'll just leave that in the air. So it's very much to make you act without thinking yeah. and act without judgment and act without trying to, and by act, I mean be, right? Be towards somebody without, this happens often, without trying to be clever. It's like, no, 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 no. We don't need you to be clever. We'd rather you were truthful. Yeah. <laughs> right? right? Because in a lot of instances, and, and for a while I thought that learning that technique would allow me to practice that in real life, but let me tell you, in real life, truth isn't always what people are looking for. Another reason to prize the stage above <laughs> real life. That was actually my next question was like, did it affect you and did it shape your real life at all? Yes, because many things, I mean, the, the way Meisner technique is, is taught in a two-year program, the first year, anybody can do what they're teaching. You don't have to be an actor. So the first year teaches you how to be present with another person while life is going on. In, of course, theater, it's fictional life, but anybody can learn that. And then then the second year, you learn the things that allow you to alter yourself to serve the playwright and be not Diane in a situation, but somebody else in their situation. And not everybody can do that. I had some students 
when I was teaching at IU, there's a thing called a hot who, an adjective and a noun that deeply and succinctly reflects your point of view. So if you were in a show and somebody had a gun on stage and the, that person knows that gun is not loaded, it's a it's a prop gun, right? And they're dealing with that prop in such a in a really casual fashion. You could change it to say, okay, I need you to hot who that gun, and it better be the alarming weight, right? I had students that you would invite them to consider using a tool like that, and they would tell you that they would tell you the name that they gave it, and it would have no effect on how they touched it. And I was like, uh oh, well, you're probably not an actor then. But what I did learn from studying Meisner technique that affected me in my real life is really the benefit, and this it has extended so far, the benefit of listening without judgment when you're interacting with a person. Just to be there and listen to people, and especially, I mean, I'm just saying, especially now, people are not used to having somebody look at them and listen while they're talking I mean, how many times have I heard people say, oh, stop me if, if I've said this before. I will not stop you. It will have to be many, many times you told me this today before I would stop you. Because obviously you have a desire and a need to tell whatever story you're telling me. And it's going to be a little different, just like every show, a little different every time. Um, people are so hungry to be listened to and attended to in a in a non-judgmental way, another thing that happens in Meisner and perhaps other acting things is you look at people and you study people without saying that's bad what they're doing. You just say, oh, that's how they walk. That's how they tilt their head. That's how they don't look at me or do look at me. And that, you know, they're another letter in the alphabet. It's like, oh, look, I can use that, but I'm only going to use the way I'm only going to use the way he walks. I'm not going to use the way he swings his arms or the way he tilts his head. Um, it really invites people to be more human, right? To practice being human, which also I used to watch happen in the interactive theater when we would be, especially in prisons and juvenile detention facilities, where we always did our best to be alone with the people who lived there without any guards in the room or anything like that, um, so that people could make mistakes in communication, which happened a lot, right? Especially the, the assaultive verbal practices against women, if there was ever a woman character, and there was, that was perceived as misstepping. Oh, my God, the violence that immediately came out. And, and the moderator would have to say, can you think of a different way to say that to her? Right? And then they got to practice, right? They, they got to practice being a human being. And that's what, you know, that's what happens uh, in theater in all different ways that you get to practice all the different ways to, to be human. Yeah. So, you know, I could be wrong, but the idea that being present and non-judgmental and fully open to another human being is the goal. <laughs> this is a good thing. This is the thing you, this is the way to do it. I was curious about uh, COVID. Obviously, as an actor, you lost a major, major, huge part of your working life. And then you were in this Zoom group with our mutual friend, Toby Bercovici, the director. Were there surprises that came out of that? Like things that worked, things that you learned? Yes, it was wonderful. The biggest, and I was kind of, I always said, I feel like I'm kind of along for the ride, right? Because I, I'm a much better presenter of other people's ideas than I am as the one that has, you know, the big idea. So I would watch what other people would, would do. And it's like, oh, that's really good. The interesting lesson was that often the most engaging thing that was presented on the screen 
Music always had a huge effect, or even sound, but music always had a huge effect, but it was almost always aided by the simplicity of the action, which is also highlighted in in Meisner. It's like, don't just hit the nail on the head. My teacher would say, just hit the nail on the head. Not too much this way, not too much that way. Don't comment on it, just do it. And that thing of being simple was mesmerizing on these on the screen, which maybe film people know these things without even like some one of my friends. I, I do sketch comedy in uh, in Portland with Spectravagasm and Sam Dinkowitz, who is the uh, mastermind of all this. He's like, yeah, big deal. So after COVID, uh, all these theater people will have the same kind of talent uh, base that film students have in the first three months of taking a course. <laughs> Yippee, aren't we smart now? Um, so, you know, it's a different genre. You know, for years, people would tell me that I should do more film or do more television. And I never want to do it because of the aspect of the audience and their energy output being absent. Yeah, people will say, oh, well, the crew is there. Please, that's not that's not the same at all. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with actress Diane Condrat. We'll be back with more after a short break. This is Interstates. This is Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. We're listening to a conversation I had with actress Diane Condrat outside at Butler Park in Bloomington, Indiana, on a gorgeous, cool day last September. So you've been acting for 45 years. You've figured a lot of things out. Are there new challenges at this point in your career that you didn't expect to be facing? I think for me, there a lot of them are the same, which is finding good work and good people to work with. My dream with with shows and with casts is to have somebody that's better than me so I can learn more. One of the things that's happened now that I'm the age that I am is I get cast as men. Uh, in Portland, I played Ronald Reagan. I played Adolf Hitler. Um, and I played a little guy from New Jersey because I couldn't find anybody who seemed like they were from Jersey. Uh, nobody, knows, nobody knows how to talk anymore. Um, so all of a sudden, I'm playing men. So that's pretty kooky. I mean, I've pretended to be a man before, but these are instances where I'm actually supposed to be a man. And with the Ronald Reagan thing, what? How tall was he? I mean, he was a movie star guy, thankfully, in this play, Passion Play uh, is the name of the piece. He already is has a little of his Alzheimer's stuff. And I didn't know until the last minute they gave me a microphone and that saved my life because he already had that kind of breathy, hesitant quality to his speech, which would have never worked if they hadn't given me a microphone. And then literally the day before we opened, they gave me a mic and I was like, oh, I'm saved. So that's a new challenge. Uh, other than that, you know, when I look at myself and what I prefer, I have a real, I have a real addiction to, uh, to beauty. Um, and that is well served by, by this truck that's going by. We'll wait <laughs> it sure for is. It. Yeah, let's wait for it. I have a real addiction to beauty that is well served by being in the Pacific Northwest now. But when people are like, oh, uh, just because you're older, you know, it doesn't mean, you know, you're not going to have parts or something like that. I know that there are people who think that old people are just as beautiful as young people. I don't know, man. I really like to see beautiful people. I mean, bodies are the forms that are in theater, right? And unless you're the kind of director that toys with that form, which is thrilling, that's what you get. 
And I understand when people don't want to see anything but what they perceive as the most beautiful thing that's on that stage. Now, sometimes it is true, often, I'll just say, often it is true that the most beautiful emotional life is presented from somebody who's mature, and the most beautiful physical life is presented by somebody who's young. So what are you going to do there? I don't know. A lot of radio. Um, it's, a, it's a problem. So I know that I have missed being cast as a lot of queens because I am not tall and I am not thin. And it's like, oh, I'm never going to, that's never going to happen. I'm never going to be tall and thin. And now it's like, well, this is the body that I have, which I know is supposed to be the point of view you always have when you go into an audition. Here I am. It's probably what you're looking for. This is what I got. Is for you. But it's a big shift. I mean, I say now, my, uh, my sexy used to be worth more than my funny, but now my funny is worth more than my sexy. And it's hugely true, partially because if you're good looking and a woman for a long time, it was like nobody wanted you to be funny. You were one or the other. You were either pretty and probably it'd be best if you shut up or you looked a little goofy and then you could be funny. So um, that has that has changed for me um, in the kind of things I'm being asked to do. But even when I was much younger, people would say, oh, you're a character actor. But I think that's because I naturally am comfortable assuming different ways of being. One of the first books I ever read in my life was entertaining my mother with a book that was all vaudeville radio plays. And everything was written out in dialect. So I was very comfortable with all these different ways of being. So I've been a character actor. It's not like I've become a character actor. So as far as new challenges... The only new challenges are to come up with even more ways to keep theater alive and in service to human beings, despite the push toward technological involvement. When I know that kids spend so much of their time, and some adults too, playing video games and never having the sort of reward of intense human interaction that theater gives one, it's like, oh, come, 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 come and see what this feels like. So that's the challenge for me is, is there any way that I can help continue a tradition that needs us as humans to be together? I mean, when you think of something like Clowns Without Borders. I don't know it. Clowns Without Borders is like Doctors Without Borders, but they're clowns that go to refugee camps. These are the saints. These are the performative saints in our, uh, in our world. Um, that kind of healing that happens through emotional interchange is a really powerful thing to keep us all alive in what seems to be an increasingly frightening time. I took a class, a weekend class, with Giovanni Fusetti. He's in Italy right now. He's a clown and a teacher and uh, a Jungian. And I got to watch this workshop. He's a fabulous clown. Uh, Helikos, H-E-L-I-K-O-S, I believe is his company. And he teaches all over the world. I saw people in this workshop I was, I think there were only two performers in the workshop. Everybody else was a social worker or a psychologist or a teacher. The transformations I saw among these people under the guidance of this clown were spectacular. And I think that can only happen in theater. I, I, had, I had a plan that I would go back to school to be a drama therapist once nobody wanted to cast me anymore. But if you uh, are curious, it's really expensive 
to become a drama therapist. Holy moly. And it takes a lot of time. I frankly don't have the money uh, to do that. So that is something that, you know, if that somehow became an easier way for me <laughs> to approach that, I certainly would because drama therapy is an astounding process. Yeah. That's all I got. That's that's great. That's a lot. You weren't planning on ending up in Bloomington spending 27 years here. You've since moved to Portland, which I'm not in that much in the theater world, but I'm guessing is also not sort of a big destin like the, the destination for theater. Has it ended up being satisfying working in the more regional kinds of theaters? In case anybody needs to know, Chicago is the place in the United States that if you want to do beautiful theater, that's where you go. Um, however, there was a moment backstage at the Riverview Playhouse. I was doing a play called Shadowbox, and I was playing uh, the daughter, the unfavored daughter of a woman who was very ill, who kept waiting for a letter from the other daughter. And then that daughter started to write letters to her mom under the guise of it being from the other daughter. A lady came backstage. I was taking off my makeup. She had great, those great big 80s glasses, right? She was a little, she was a little overweight. She was not well-dressed. Her glasses were so up against her cheeks that it was like pressing them up against a, a, a window. And I believe her glasses were not clean either. And she came backstage and she found me and she was very quiet. She was a big woman, tall woman, but her voice was so quiet. And she said, she touched my shoulder and she said, thank you very much. That was my life. That story there with my mom thank you. And then she went away. Those moments are the best. And, you know, they can happen anywhere. You don't plan them. You don't sometimes know. I mean, she came back and did an announcement, right? She came back and told me. Who knows for any of us who are performers how many people feel not so alone in the world once they have been with you and the show that you're doing or the performance that you're doing. And I have a friend who's, she's a scholar. And um, what she said to me recently was, well, you know, commercial theater in New York and commercial theater in fill in the blank, it's all over. It's only money. It's big money and it's people making money. And if you can get those Oh, somebody talked to her about, you know who the actors are now? Only rich people's kids, because that's the only people who can afford to live in those particular towns, who have the kind of connections that say, get me a job, who will have a family member who can donate to a theater. Man, I'm not naming names. And then that person gets cast. And she was like, you know, it's going to go back to the case where it is regional smaller, more intimate theater presentation that becomes, again, the true art, where money is not the ruler of the interaction, where shared humanity and the need to perform, the need to be in an audience, because, you know, not everybody wants to be on stage, but, man, there's people that want to feel the big feelings that come in the theater. And uh, so I, uh, I would like to have a lot of money. I would like to have people just, you know, clap when they see me walk down the street. That'd be pretty swell. But that's not, that's not the true, that's not the heartbeat of being an actor. The heartbeat of the being an actor is finding another heart, right? Diane Contrat, thank you so much for taking this time. Thank you. 
If you miss Diane in Bloomington, you can catch her in Portland. She's not stopping anytime soon. My mother-in-law, who I went up to Chicago to see yesterday and get new headshots, she said, she's 96. She has nothing to do with the arts. She said, I can't believe it. You're so old and they're still paying you to do things. I was like, yeah, it's crazy. Don't tell. Yeah, yeah. So the fact that I'm that I still get opportunities to do things is super good because not everybody does, you know. Yeah. You've been listening to Interstates. If you have a story for us or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at WFIU.org slash interstates. That's I-N-N-E-R-S-T-A-T-E-S. Speaking of found sound, we've got your quick minute of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Mark Chilla, Michael Paskash, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Diane Kondrat. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. All right, time to take a breath and listen to a place. You've been listening to A Train Over the Beeline in Bloomington, Indiana. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening. Riding back at the top of the hunter's moon. See airplanes like stars slinging. Subliminal, we make the rounds and soon.